Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. Glad to have you here. We are a Bible-based church out of Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and help them become devoted followers of Jesus. We live in a culture that is constantly changing and does not always agree with the truth of Scripture. You know what I'm talking about? So in this message, we'll ask ourselves the question, when should I draw a line in the sand? If we fail to answer this question, the chances are very high that we'll find ourselves pulled away by the current of culture. With that, let's turn over to Pastor Nate with part three of our Truth About Lies series, Line in the Sand. It's great to see you all here today. If you if you haven't been with us over the past couple of weeks, we're actually in week three of a message series from Connections Church called "The Truth About Lies." And uh, it may seem strange to you to kick off the new year with a series about lies. However, we're learning that lies are extremely powerful, and obviously, uh, we shouldn't lie. Does everybody know that? Yeah, you guys like me. You were taught as kids, don't don't tell lies. Uh, they didn't always tell me. My parents didn't always tell me why I shouldn't lie. They didn't tell me necessarily as a little kid that lying broke trust, that lying would damage relationships, that ultimately when we tell a lie, even though we gain some small advantage in telling, that's why we lie, right? To get away with stuff, to, to twist the truth, to manipulate. But when we lie, it costs us more in the long run. And these are lessons that I learned as a group. So I think we can all agree, lying is bad. It's, it's something we should not do. But this series is not about the lies we tell, okay? So don't lie. It's actually about the lies that we believe. And I said this last week, I think the lies we believe, the lies that we internalize are actually in some ways more sinister because we don't know we're doing it. If I lie to you, I know what I'm doing. And when, I, when that thing blows up in my face, I should kind of expect. I shouldn't have lied. I knew that. But when we believe a lie, when someone tells us something and we think it's true and we internalize it and we act it out and it's actually a lie, we have no clue it's happening. The, the illustration I gave last week, when I was six or seven years old, my older brother came and was like, hey, do you want the other half of my chocolate bar? And if you were here, you know what happened, because that was not chocolate, it was X-lax in the form of chocolate, which is a laxative. And I ate a half of this bar, and I was very, very ill. Now, my brother lied to me. I was innocent, but I believed the lie, I received the lie, and I lived out the lie, if you know what I'm saying. So it, it was bad, okay? When we believe, and the same is true for you and I. If we believe the lies that Satan whispers in our ears... It will cost us dearly. If we believe the lies, we're going to talk a little bit today about the lies of our culture. How many of you know that not everything in culture is good? In fact, many aspects of our culture are, are downright lies, but we, we go, oh yeah, it's good, everyone's doing it, and we move along with the flow, and the problem with all that is, is that it ends up costing us, and then we pay the price for believing and living out lies, and we have no clue it's happening. Uh, The New Testament uh, highlights three sources of lies, and so we talked about these the last few weeks. The unholy trinity, some theologians have called it, okay? Uh, Speaking of the world, which we're going to talk about today, the flesh, which we focused on last week, and the devil. Let me say a few words about each. Uh, Jesus called the devil, or Satan, who's a a fallen archangel, that Satan is the father of lies. He says that when he lies to us, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, as I said last week, when Satan's lies come to us, it doesn't sound like, no one will ever love you. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like your voice or your parents' voice or someone that you trust. 
And it's, it's deceptive because when Satan lies to us, there's always half true. There's always truth in it. So it's easy for us to accept that at face value and go, that must be true about me. That must be how God feels. That must be what's right for me. And we move in that direction only to discover later that the truth has been twisted and that it will cost us dearly in the end. So Satan comes, the devil comes and lies to us. Last week we talked about the flesh. This is the second one. The flesh is, is our sinful desires that are within our bodies, right? I want more cake. I want more of this. I want to be selfish. I want to do what's right for me. Uh, the Greek word for that is sarks. And we said last week that we need to starve our sarks, right? Say no to our fleshly appetites and feed our soul with the Word of God and to move in the way of the Spirit and loving others rather than doing what's best for ourselves. And then the last one, and this is the one we're going to talk about today, is the world. Can we all say the world? It didn't, it didn't sound sinister enough to the world. See, when I was a kid growing up in church, man, when they talked about the world, it was always a negative thing. Like, if you didn't grow up in church, like the world. Well, it's like the planet. It's the people in the planet. Like, it's the world, right? I know. Because that's actually one of the meanings of the word. But, but in the New Testament, when it talks about the world, everybody say the world. That's, yeah. <laughs> Right? When, we, when we talked about the world in church growing up, it was like, if the world was something negative, okay? The world was something negative. My, my parents used to say to me, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. Which meant that the, the world has a way of doing things, and then we, as followers of Jesus, have a different way of doing things, and we're not supposed to be the same. What I couldn't figure out as a kid was what the difference was supposed to be. Because I went to school, and my friends who weren't Christians, like, we played the same sports, and we did all this, we had the same uh, hobbies, and, like, we like we were very, very similar. I'm saying, so what exactly is supposed to be different? We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, in the New Testament, the word that's translated into the English word world, if you throw it up for me, is actually the Greek word cosmos. And, and like English, the word world, the word world, can have uh, two different definitions. Here they are. The first one is the physical world, or the people in it. Right, so that's that's pretty obvious. Okay, so when the New Testament uses the word cosmos, it can mean the physical world, like the planet and the people, or, and this is the negative one, the values and systems of a fallen world that is opposed to God. That's the other definition. So my parents said we're in the world, but we're not of the world. They were talking about this. Uh, when the New Testament talks about not pursuing the way of the world, it's talking about this, not this. And let me give you two scriptural examples of how this word cosmos is used just to, to frame the conversation. Many of you will know John 3.16, okay? It reads like this. For God so loved the cosmos. So which of those two definitions is John, the author of this, uh, which one is he talking about? He's talking about the people of the world, the physical people of the world. Every nation, every gender, every, every language, every group of people. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so how do we know He's not talking about that God didn't love the system of the world? Well, because it says that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have an everlasting life. So God cares about the people of the world. In fact, God loves even the people who are against Him. He loves the people of the world that He created. So that's one use of the word cosmos. The same author, John, note down here, John 3.16, in his letter to the church, 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world. Anybody confused yet? Is he saying don't love the people in your neighborhood and at your workplace and in your family? No. He's using the same word cosmos, but he's using it in the other way. He's talking about the, the system of the world, the ideology of the world, the way that the world behaves. And how do we know? Because we keep reading and he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, not talking about people, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the way 
of behaving. It's a value system. He says, these are not from the Father, but from the world. He continues and says, and the word, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's saying, God loves people of the world, but we, as followers of Jesus, are not to embrace the system, the ideology, and the way of this world. Does that make sense? You guys, you guys with me? Okay. So what we're really talking about is, where is the line between Christian culture and Canadian culture? Let's talk about that. So first you have to say, well, what is culture? I have a definition that I'll throw up just in case uh, you're not really sure exactly what the word means. Culture can be defined as a way of life for a group of people, including values, beliefs, language, and practices. Let me give you a visual illustration. This is the one that helps me understand culture the best. How many of you have ever been swimming in a round swimming pool? You know, at first you're thinking to yourself, this is lame. It's shallow. There's no diving board. There's no slide. But one of the most fun things that you can do in a round swimming pool, anybody know what it is? Tidal wave. Yeah, that would be a good one. Uh, inevitably, whenever you're in a, in a round swimming pool, somebody gets the idea like, hey, let's all walk or run around the perimeter in the same direction. You create a whirlpool. And, uh, you know, if everyone's moving in different directions, all you get is waves. But if everyone starts walking around the outside of the pool, next thing you know, grandma gets sucked in on her floaty. And she's like, she's got her drink, and she's like with everybody. She's not even doing anything. Everybody's just going in circles. And, and it's, it's kind of fun. And, and as long as you're moving with everybody, you're in the current, you're just like bobbing along. You can, you, whatever. It's, it's easy. It's fun. Everyone's just kind of cruising around the pool. That movement of the water that's moving with the people is what I call culture. And whenever you get a large group of people all moving in the same direction, doing the same things, embracing the same values and beliefs, it creates a culture. And anybody that comes into that culture gets sucked into it. If you've ever worked in a place where maybe there's 20 or 30 employees, and there's a culture of criticism, and the manager's criticizing the workers, and the workers are criticizing the manner, and even if you're not a critical person, most of us are, if we're honest, but even if you're not a critical person, if you're in that environment very long, guess what happens to you? You start being critical. That's the power of culture. It's like a pull. When everyone's moving in the same direction, you start getting sucked in. And so this works in two ways. You can go to your high school. You can be in your workplace, your family. Did you know that your family has a culture? That when people walk into your home and spend time with your family, they feel the pull of your culture. If you have a tidy culture, they feel it. You put your plate down and everyone's like... You're going to leave that there? Right? Like, there's a culture. It's just polling. But we can also create positive culture. That's a sermon in front of the time. We can have a culture at Pathway Church when we show up that people are like, we worship God. We serve and love one another. We forgive. And anybody that comes into this place and starts hanging around rubbing shoulders with Pathway people, they go, man, I don't know. I just find myself forgiving people. Why? Because I'm just getting sucked into the culture that is created here by community people who have shared values, beliefs, etc. So we live in a world. We live in a world that has a culture. And here's some mom wisdom. Okay? Uh, just as my mom used to say this, just because everyone's doing it doesn't make it right. Yeah. But mom, everyone's going to the overnight party in the hayloft. It's like, no, just because everyone's doing it doesn't make... Mom, it's just, a, it's just a belly button ring. It's not a big deal. Just, hey, I know I'm 15, mom, but I want a giant hawk tattooed on my back just because everyone's doing it doesn't make it Right? And then she would say something like this. If all your friends were jumping off a roof, would you do it? And I would shake, I'd be like, no, I although I had it jumped off a roof because I felt the pressure. My friends were all doing it. 
right into a swimming pool. It was very dangerous. Don't do that. Just because everyone's doing something doesn't make it right. By the way, consensus does not always equal uh, correct. I got a little slide there. Consensus does not make something correct. And, uh, you know, if we think back through in history, we live in a world right now, we live in a democracy, right? Which it sort of means that, like, rules change and the system changes as the people change, right? Because we vote in people and we vote on, and laws are passed and all of this in our democratic society. What we fail to realize is that um, just because everyone agrees that something right doesn't make it right. It's, it's interesting to me how much culture has changed, even in my lifetime. Uh, when I was a kid, if you were caught with marijuana, I mean, you could be charged. It was, it was illegal. Now it's sold in every corner. Now, you can argue whether that's good or bad. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make is things that in one generation are wrong and the next generation are right. In one generation, everyone's like, don't do that. In the next generation, it's being celebrated. So who's right? Which generation was correct? Do we always assume that the latest model is the best? I don't know. When I look back on history, I see things. Uh, I have had the opportunity to spend time talking with some folks who lived in Germany during World War II. And there was a Nazi party that came into power, and they began to espouse ideas. And some of those ideas and some of the things they did were good for the people, and others were sinister. And without knowing it, the whole population started to move in a direction, and all of a sudden atrocities were made possible because of ideology that had come in place, and people moved in a direction. Same thing happened in, in, with communism. And, of course, we... You know, in the 2024, we look back and like, if we were there, it would have been totally different. But we weren't in the swimming pool. We weren't getting sucked down the lazy river by the current, right? Because we, we weren't there. So like, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would have been hiding Jews in my basement. Really? I don't know. The point is, is there's a culture. And culture is constantly changing. And my question is, is the culture that we currently have in Canada, is the culture that we currently have, is it correct? I don't know. There, the thing about culture is that there are always aspects to culture that are good. Like, we have freedom and equality. Some of these things that we have, we're, we're, we're starting to think about our environment and taking care of the world around us. These are all good things, but there's also some really negative aspects of our culture. For example, in, in our culture, there's this idea that you can set your own identity and decide who you, you can be God. That's the idea. You can be God. And I think 50 years, 100 years from now, historians will look back and be like, what were they thinking? But we don't even notice it because we're just being sucked along. You, you with me? Okay? And so uh, who's to say that we're correct? And here's the, the bigger question. How do we as Christians, how do we know when to draw a line in the sand and be like, I go this far, no further? Because being a Christian, being set apart for God does not mean being weird just saying it doesn't it, the, the point is it's not like everyone's just like you know we could all get you know brown robes we could all wear brown robes so everyone could identify us as christians we could we could buy some some property up in bancroft it used to be cheap it's not anymore we get some 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 property up there we could build a monastery we could all hide away that's that's not what the new testament teaches us to do but it does teach us that there is a line and we do need to take a stand as followers of jesus that we need to say there are aspects of our culture we have to say no to so how do we know what aspects of culture to say no to? I want to turn this morning to Daniel chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up and follow along. Uh, in Daniel uh, chapter 1, we have um, this young man named Daniel. Let me set the stage. Uh, Daniel is a man who's going to draw a line in the sand. And I think looking at his story and his example is going to help us to know how we ought to do this as well. Um, the nation of Israel had turned away from God. And because of that, after many warnings... 
Um, God allows the nation of Babylon to invade and destroy the city. The officials, the children, the teens, the young adults uh, from the ruling families and the ruling class are basically taken away as hostages to Babylon. That's the setting for Daniel. And Daniel is one of those young men who is a hostage, him and his three friends, uh, that are described in the book. And in Daniel 1, verse 3, it says this, The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was actually really smart. Instead of just destroying every country that he invaded, he decided instead that he would assimilate those nations into his empire. Pretty smart, really. It's like, instead of us just conquering and keeping everyone under our thumb, why don't we include them in our culture? Why don't we bring them into the family? That was the idea. And so there's this, this aim to assimilate all of the people into Babylonian culture. And the way you do that is you take the royal families, you take those who are most influential, and you assimilate them into your uh, culture. Now, what's interesting about our current culture, let me a little aside, our culture, it's not like one person's in control of it, but the pull of Canadian culture in our modern context actually wants to assimilate everyone to all move, think, and believe the same thing. We talk all the time about diversity in our country, and I think diversity, racial diversity, and diversity economically, all that stuff is fine. But I think it's, it's a bit of a smokescreen because we're always talking about diversity, 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 but the moment you have an opinion that differs from somebody else, you get canceled. And that tells you that the culture doesn't want everyone doing their own thing, moving in different directions of the pool. They want everyone moving together. Follow me. Everyone. Agree with us. Do it our way. And as long as you're in our general stream, we're good with you. But here's the thing I've noticed about culture and about pools. The mo- you're fine. It's so easy when you're going with the flow. But the moment you go, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be going this way. I need to go that way. Have you ever tried turning around when everyone's going that way? All of a sudden, you realize how much pull that current really has. And you're going, and you're getting anxious because everybody's going that way. And it's difficult. It's difficult. So, he's going to take these young people. They're going to integrate them into society. It continues and it says this. Here's, here's who they were looking for. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. King Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant. Not only do I want the royal families, I want the best and the brightest of them. Can I tell you something? Our culture wants our best and our brightest. If you're under 25 and you're listening to me today, you are some of the best and the brightest in our city. And our culture wants you. And I would argue that Satan wants you. And he wants you just going with the flow, floating down the river, instead of taking a stand for God and becoming who God has called you to be. He wants you to be just so comfortable floating down the lazy river that you don't realize that God has more for you. And and the culture just wants to suck everyone along. And every time you open up your phone and you're looking at Instagram, every time you're 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 hanging out with your friends, it's all pulling you, pulling you, pulling you, pulling you to be like everyone else, not to take a stand, not to be different. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's plan was. Take all the best and brightest and we're gonna make them Babylonian. And they'll lead everyone else to become Babylonian continues and says this, that they would be competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. It goes on to say this, the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food. They get to eat from the king's very own table and of the wine that he drank. And this next verse I want us to take a look at. says they were to be educated for three years. So they're getting like an undergraduate degree 
in Babylon. Right? They're being trained. They're being indoctrinated in Babylonian history, religion, politics, language. Every aspect of Babylon, they're just being trained for three years straight. This is, this is remarkable. So the goal is take the best and the brightest, make them Babylonians, indoctrinate them, train them to be Babylonians. And can I say, I don't, I don't often talk about education, but I'll tell you what, our education system at large, and again, I'm not pointing fingers, but our education system at large is not training people to be followers of Jesus. Can we agree? It's like, this is what culture says. This is, this is what's being pushed down the chain and what we're supposed to teach, and we're teaching that. And I thank God every day, because my kids are in the public system. I thank God every day for teachers and administrators who are Christians, who are in there, who are being salt and light. And it's, it's incredible that God has put faithful people. Daniel and his friends are going to serve this king. And they're going to be faithful to God at the same time. It's possible, and they're going to make a difference. And so they're being indoctrinated, just like our kids. Universities are indoctrinating kids. They're not just educating. Can I just say that? We just need to be aware of it, okay? Okay, so that's what's going on for three years, and at the end of that time, they're going to stand before the king. And then it tells us who was there. Among these were Daniel, who we know who he is. And then we have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Like, who are they? Well, they're all going to get renamed. And these three guys are better known as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But these four young men, they, they actually are going to take a stand. And it says, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So not only are they being dressed in Babylonian robes, taught the Babylonian language, they're going to Babylonian seminary to learn about all their gods. They're learning about culture and tradition. Now they get Babylonian names. Daniel means God is my judge. That's what that name means. So every time Daniel's name was said, he was reminding him of who his God was and that God would judge him. And his name gets changed to Belteshazzar. And Bel was the God of the Babylonians. So now instead of a name that reminded him of his God, he's getting a name that reminds him of a false God. And the same is true for his friends. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Azariah is called Abednego. So they want to change their, their clothes. They want to change their culture, change their language even changing their names. The culture that we live in wants to change and shape your identity so that it matches with where culture is going. They want you to fit in and go along with them. So here's the Babylonian assimilation plan. New language, new name, new food, new job, new clothes, new religion. All of this is coming down on these four young men. Now, which of these in the list do you think was going to be a big deal for Daniel? This is actually a little surprising if you don't know the story. Yeah. Some of you are like, food, which doesn't make sense. It's like, hey, I want you to dress like a Babylonian. I'm changing your name. I'm making forcing you to learn about our religion and our politics and our culture and our language. And they're like, yeah, but we're not going to eat the food. Which seems so strange. Of all those things, it's like, we get, the, we get the king's choice cuts of meat. What's the problem with that? Why does Daniel and his friends draw the line here? And the answer is super simple. Because none of the other things that they were forced to do required them to violate the law of God. The Bible doesn't say you can't wear Babylonian clothes. It doesn't say you can't wear bell-bottoms. You shouldn't. It does not say, thou shalt not wear a mullet. But I highly recommend against it. So there are aspects of culture that we're just indifferent about. It doesn't matter. But there are some things that really do. And in this case, the reason why the food was such an issue was because the law of God for the nation of Israel stated two things. Number one, there were certain types of meat they weren't to eat, pork, etc. 
right? That they were bound to as, as good young Jews. The second thing, and maybe even the more significant one, is that all the food that the king ate, specifically the meat, had first been offered and sacrificed to Bel, the god of Babylon. And they were forbidden to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel's like, for me to do that, I would have to compromise something that I cannot compromise. For I must be faithful to God's word. And the question that remains for you and I is, what are the things that our culture is asking of us that violate God's word? Here's a problem. You won't know what they are unless you're opening this book and reading it for yourself. You won't know what they are unless you read the words of Jesus, unless you read the New Testament, unless you know precisely what it is that Christians are to do and not do. So here's what happens. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the food or with the wine and the drink. Daniel goes, hey, I'll wear your clothes, I'll go to your classes, I'll learn your language, but I can't eat your food. Now, he's not a jerk about it, which I think Christians should take a lesson from. Okay, because sometimes Christians are like, and we make a big scene. It says this, it says, therefore he asked that the chief allow him not to defile himself. And they come up with a plan, like we'll do a test, we'll eat the food that God tells us to eat, and, and all the other guys can eat this king's food, and we'll see. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what happens. It says this, and God gave Daniel what? And compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So, there isn't a person here who does not want the favor of God. What I need you to understand is that God's favor doesn't come on Daniel and his friends until after they take a stand. Everybody wants favor. Nobody wants to take a stand. When your friends are all saying, we're going in this direction, and you're like, you know what? I can't go with you. I can't participate in that behavior. And they're like, why? You're such a, a goody to you're this or that. And you're like, you know, because I cannot do that without dishonoring my God. And disobeying his command. There has to be a line somewhere that you don't cross. And here's the thing. When, the moment you draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm not using my body in that way. The moment you say that, you turn into that current and you begin to feel the pressure. And it is there when we take a stand for what is right and true that we truly experience the favor of God on our lives. I want to read to you a passage that's found in John 17. Jesus, before he's betrayed and goes to the cross, he has a specific conversation with his disciples and he prays for them. And he says he prays for us, those who would come after his disciples. Here's what it says in John 17, verse 14. I've given them your word. Jesus is like, this is what they need most. And I've given them your word. He continues. And the world hates them. Because they do not belong to the world. Now again, he's not talking about the people of the world. He's talking about the culture and the system. They're going to be different. Just as I do not belong to the world. He continues. He says this. This is really important. I'm, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. But to keep them safe from the evil one. See, I'm not praying that all the Christians would like separate and be you know, distant or even taken out of the earth and gone to heaven. He's like, what I want is them to be there, but not to be like them. And then he says, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. And then he says this, make them holy by your truth and teach them by your word, which is truth. I saw a study recently from Barna. And it was talking specifically about the millennial generation, which, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like kind of 20 to 40, somewhere in that range, the millennial generation. The millennial generation is really the first tech, the first generation that kind of grew up tech savvy with you know phones and internet as part of their life as teenagers. 
And it was saying that the millennial generation, uh, the number of hours, I think I wrote it down here somewhere, but the number of hours that the millennial generation would spend on, uh, here it is, 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content. And only 153 hours of that, but 1.5% Christ-based. So here's the crazy thing, and regardless of what generation you're from, if we spend all of our time listening to the news, listening to the culture, instead of in God's Word, which do you think will prevail? Right? Culture is a powerful force. Like if you go, oh, I'm just chilling. No, you're not chilling. You're floating downstream. That's what happens. And so we have to take a stand. And we have to take a stand on His Word. Here's, here's how Jesus finishes this statement. He says, they need your Word. Your Word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And so we see that Jesus actually teaches that we are set apart from the world. Everybody say, from the world. So we're supposed to be different. Absolutely, there are some things that are different about Christians. And we're set apart for the world. He says, as you've sent me into the world, so I send them. How many of you know, if you read about Jesus' life, how he came into the world? He came into the world and served those who hated him. He prayed for those who despitefully used him. He sacrificed his life. He healed the the sick. He he fed the hungry. And so there's an aspect of our Christian faith that is standing against the culture and another that is influencing and for the world and the people in it. So I've got a little image of the world. Here it is. Okay? There's the world. Some of you recognize it. And there's, uh, there's sort of three aspects. There's three aspects here that I want us to consider today as we begin to wrap up. The first is that we are to contrast the culture of this world. Can you guys agree with me? That doesn't mean you dress weird, but it means that when it comes to what God has said, we are, we are not going with the culture. We will go against the flow of culture in those areas. So there's contrast. If, if there is no difference between you and the people in your school or the people in your work, if you behave and act in the same way and there's no different and you're violating God's law, there's no contrast you are no longer salt and light. Jesus says, if salt has lost its, its flavor, it's, it's useless. Just be trodden underfoot. So we must contrast the world. The second thing, we must contribute to the world. Sometimes Christians, they love contrast. They love to hide away. They want to be in a monastery. They only go to Christian events. They only hang out with Christian people. They have no non-Christian friends. There's no contribution to the community around them. We can just hide out in Bible studies all week long. Instead of coaching little league or joining a parent-teacher association or getting out in your community and making friends with people that aren't Christians. Making a difference, serving others, not making everything about yourself. So we've got both contrast and contribution. And the third one is presence. Jesus was criticized a lot for just being present. He would show up and he would have dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes. And the religious people of his day who were all about contrast. You're, you're a teacher of the law. You should be separate from them. And Jesus is like, it's the sick that need a doctor. So I'm going to be present. Now Jesus affirmed his love for those people who were sinners. He affirmed their value, but he never affirmed their behaviors. Jesus' life was in stark contrast to the people he hung out with, but he was not afraid to be present with them. I believe that as a church and as followers of Jesus, we need all three of these. Right? We're set apart from the world, but we're also set apart for the world. We must contrast. There are things that must be different in our lives for us truly to be followers of Jesus. Secondly, we must contribute to our community. If this city is not a better place to live because Pathway Church and you and I are in it, we're not doing something right. Because we're here to contribute. 
And lastly, to be present, to be salt and light in a dark place. Jesus said, as I was sent in the world, so I send them. Well, that's it from us. Thank you so much for tuning in. For any more information you need, feel free to reach out to us on any of our socials at Pathway Church PTBO. That's it. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.